Several weeks ago, in honor of Dr. Wayne and Carol Mack's 50th anniversary, I gave you a ministry entitled, I gave you a message entitled, Your Marriage as a Ministry. And this morning, I equally, in honor of Tim and Hannah Sin, want to present a message entitled, Your Parenting as a Ministry. If you'll look with me in Ephesians chapter 6, I want us to occupy our minds this morning with the very reality of what Pastor Tim has written regarding the responsibility and the relationship of student ministries to you as parents. I guess if we could ask the question about the relationship of student ministries here at the Bible Church to your parenting, it would be something like this. What ingredients are necessary for Christian parents with the help of student ministries, of course? What ingredients are necessary for Christian parents to be all that they would need to be for their children? What are the non-negotiable components or activities or responsibilities that make up Christian parents' relationship to their children? Now, admittedly, the task of being a Christian father, a Christian mother in our day is a daunting one. Our society certainly doesn't lend itself to the encouragement and the support of the family. All around us is the utter disintegration of the family, the devastation of the family, with the proliferation of drugs, the inordinate inordinate focus on self, a rampant pornography, so many sinful temptations that mitigate against the family to say nothing of the challenges of simply being a Christian dad, a Christian mom, trying to rear children in this wicked world. Listen to the laments of a pastor on this very subject. He writes, Who can wonder at the disordered state of society at large or be surprised at the, un- at the abounding of evils and miseries in our world that looks at the manner in which domestic duties are neglected? When I consider what poor, ignorant, thoughtless, frivolous, wicked creatures are often seen at the head of households, I can only ascribe it to the interference of an all-wise and powerful providence that society is not far more chaotic than it is. That statement was made by Pastor John Angel James, and that statement was made in 1833. If a godly pastor made that statement about our deteriorating society in 1833, 33, how far has society degenerated since then? How much harder is it for Christian parents to be faithful to their God and to their children? The same godly pastor, John James, said, It is indeed an awful thing to be a parent, and it is enough to awaken the anxious, trembling inquiry in every heart, Lord, who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who is capable of handling such a task? Who is qualified to undertake 
such a job of raising godly children in such an ungodly world? How can I do it? What does God tell me to do? What are the tools that are absolutely necessary in order for me to fulfill my duty as a Christian father or as a Christian mother? This is an extremely important question for every Christian father and mother, whether you're talking about even being an anticipated Christian father or mother, whether you're talking about a Christian father or mother who have one or more children, or whether you're a Christian grandparent, or whether you're even as a single person preparing, or a single person who's holding the rest of us who are married and have children accountable. These are daunting days. And what tools has God given us? What principles can we learn from which must be shouted from the housetops of all the Christian homes across the land that could be for us such a marked contrast with homes without Christ. Pastor James says, What man in his senses would undertake the office of a pilot upon a dangerous coast without a knowledge of navigation? or that of a general of an army without a knowledge of military tactics, or that of a physician without a knowledge of medicine and diseases. And who would go on another hour in the office of parent without seeking to possess all suitable qualifications? He's right. Listen to one verse from Paul, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers even though obviously implied by verse 1, children obey your parents, but as fathers, as heads of households, but certainly which are not excluding mothers, fathers implied and mothers, of course, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now that is astounding. Because in the midst of my introductory comments about this daunting task of parenting, you mean to tell me that the Apostle Paul only gives us one verse? He tells the Ephesian body of believers in one verse the parenting task that is before them? Yes, but there's a lot here. There's a negative command, do you see it? Do not provoke your children to anger. And then there's a positive command, but bring them up in the discipline or nurture and instruction or admonition of the Lord. In other words, do not do something and yet do something. And if you know anything about this culture out of which Paul speaks, the Ephesian culture, whether you're talking about a Roman-dominated idea, or you're talking about a Jewish idea of home life, or you're talking even about a Hellenistic Judaism that is a Greek-dominated Jewish culture, Uh, whichever you're talking about, all of those kinds of cultures, and even all of those in one place, had incredible difficulties when it came to the matter of parenting and children. Parenting in Ephesus and elsewhere in Paul's day was very different than in our own day in many, many ways. In that 
pagan society, mutual love, family love was almost unheard of. Not absent, but not very common. The Roman law, for instance, of patria potestis, the father who had absolute control over his children, was very, very predominant, even virtually controlling their life and death. He could send them away from his household, this this Roman father. He could sell them as slaves, or if he so choose, chose, he could even kill them if he desired. Harold Honer says, In the Roman family, the father's control over the son was for life. Try that on for size in the 21st century. He could imprison his son, scourge, shame, and punish him, sell him into slavery up to three times, or have him killed. The son's position in the community was of no consequence. Though he might be a magistrate, we would say a judge, he was still under his father's authority. The father had more authority over his son than a master, his slaves. It was even true in some places that a newborn, if the father of that newborn, seeing that newborn placed at his feet, was not disposed to care for that little baby, the baby was discarded, or in some cases destroyed. Some of the infants would simply be abandoned and then would be taken to the town square and raised as slaves or prostitutes. It was a harsh time. And apparently, even if babies were kept, they weren't always treated with kindness and care. They would be expected to do exactly what they were told without much nurturing or love. And it would certainly be true that in that pagan city of Ephesus, fathers would be continually provoking the worst kind of anger in their children. And you can imagine what these children would turn out to be when they became mothers and dads. Honer remarks, In Hellenistic Judaism, parents were to children as God to the world, master. Fathers had a right to upbraid and severely admonish as well as beat, degrade, and lock up their children. If a child continued to rebel, the father, with the consent of the mother, could execute the child in accordance with Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 21. It was a hard time to be a kid. And out of that very context comes the strong command of Paul, which would have been radical, very radical. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. You see, as the church was established by Paul, he pastored them and he's telling them, and as Tim Sin has modeled for ten years of ministry here, now that you love Christ and you desire to be a contrast to the pagan society around you, don't do what unsaved fathers do, continually provoking their children to anger. Don't do that. Love them. Nurture them. Care for them. He's challenging them to be different. That parallel passage in Colossians 3.21 has it this way, Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. To exasperate or to provoke literally means do not embitter them or stir them up. Don't put them in an angry mood. Do not provoke your children to become resentful. And how do Christian fathers do that? Lou Priolo is helpful in his book, The Heart of Anger. How do you do that? 
Here are some of the ways he says. Lack of marital harmony can provoke children to anger. Establishing and maintaining a child-centered home. Modeling sinful anger. Habitually disciplining while angry. Scolding and reviling with harsh words. Being inconsistent with discipline. Having double standards. Being legalistic, not admitting you're wrong as parents and not seeking forgiveness, constantly finding fault in your child, husbands and wives reversing their God-given roles, not listening to your child's opinions or taking them seriously, comparing them to other children, not making time just to talk, not praising or encouraging your child, failing to keep your promises, disciplining them in front of others, not allowing enough freedom where freedom is appropriate, allowing too much freedom where freedom is not appropriate, mocking your child, abusing your child physically, ridiculing your child or or calling them names, unrealistic expectations for your child, practicing favoritism with your children, child training with the methods of the world which are inconsistent with God's Word. Those are just a few. As I said, it's a daunting task not to provoke your children to anger. And how does... Paul, in this context, say you must do it. Ephesians 5.18 is the clarion verse and the balance of this entire text. And it is this, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you can do it. That is the only way you can do it, to have self-control. Martin Lloyd-Jones Says that says that is always a very real danger when we exercise discipline and if we become guilty of it, we shall do more harm than good. We shall not have succeeded in disciplining our children. We shall simply have produced such a violent reaction in them, so much wrath and resentment that the position will be worse almost than if we had not exercised any discipline at all. He goes on to say, we are incapable of exercising true discipline unless we are first able to exercise self-control and discipline our own tempers. When you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself, not provoking them by your own provocations. If you try to discipline your child when you are in a temper, it is certain that you will do more harm than good. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control... Control of temper is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. He says there is nothing more irritating to the one who is undergoing discipline than a feeling that the person who is administering it is capricious and uncertain. There is nothing more annoying to a child than the kind of parent whose moods and actions you can never predict, who is changeable, whose condition is always uncertain. There is no worse type of parent than he who one day in a kindly mood is indulgent and allows the child to do almost anything it likes, but who the next day flares up in a rage if the child does scarcely anything at all. Such a parent, I say again, fails to exercise a true and helpful discipline and the position of the child becomes impossible. He is provoked and irritated to wrath and has no respect for such a parent so true and so hard to be consistently following through upon. You look at any cursory reading of the book of Proverbs and it shows a wise and a loving and a consistent character 
as the most profound effect upon a child's life by their parents. And remember, it's all out of the overflow of your own control by the Holy Spirit. But boy, if you do this, if you parent in such a way that you're not provoking them to anger, but you're in self-control, dealing with them in love and in patience, you're going to have your parenting of your own children as a ministry to a watching world. Your parenting will be a ministry to others, maybe even a ministry first and foremost to fellow members of the body of Christ to say nothing of the opportunity to show a pagan society around you how to parent children. Do we not need to show them such a parenting philosophy that when done by the control of the Holy Spirit would, as they say in the vernacular today, blow their minds? Give them a sense of what it means not to provoke your children to anger, not to discipline them without self-control. John Angel James says again, Parents, as you would wish your instructions and admonitions to your family to be successful, enforce them by the power of a holy example. It is not enough for you to be pious on the whole, but you should be wholly pious. Not only to be real disciples, but eminent ones. Not only sincere Christians, but consistent ones. Your standard of religion should be very high. To some parents I would give this advice. Say less about religion to your children or else manifest more of its influence. Leave off family prayer or else leave off family sins. Beware how you act for all your actions are seen at home. They are. Probably in the home more than anywhere else we are exposed for who we really are. What kind of parent are you? Tim Sen has been leading the charge in telling us and in showing us what it means to be a godly parent. Hannah has by her sweet spirit shown what it means to be a godly wife and mother and for us to be able to show even as a pastoral team how parents ought to treat their children, not provoking them to anger or wrath. That's the negative command he gives here. In essence, do not provoke your children to anger could be translated with something like this. Don't make a provision. Stay away from, think through how not to provoke your children to anger. And then here's the positive one. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a positive command. Present Active imperative. Make it your business continually, positively, proactively to bring them up. I love that phrase, bring them up. Could be translated, rear them tenderly. Rear them tenderly. Love, says Paul, must replace anger. John Calvin translates this phrase, let them be fondly cherished. In other words, rear, nourish, prepare your children for maturity. That's that's the whole of student ministries. 
Did you hear that in the philosophy of ministry for student ministries? That we assist parents in the job that they are to do. Don't assume for one moment that, that it is our job as pastors, that it is our job as a ministry to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But that's no doubt why Paul says here in verse 4, fathers, head of households, leaders, you bring them up. And Student Ministries is here to help you. We're here to help you in your parenting. We're here to help you with your children. We're here to assist. We're here to be called alongside, but we are not the replacement thereof. Don't think of us as those who are surrogate surrogate parents. It's not our role. That's not our ministry. Our ministry is to come alongside you as you do that which you're commanded to do in this great text. And of course, the greatest ministry that a watching world, a pagan society, not 1833, but 2007, needs to see is that you and I, as parents, with the assistance of student ministries, is bringing them up in the discipline and instruction or the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Discipline is that word paideia. It's the same word in 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says, training in righteousness. It's the idea that we have a training ministry. Uh, We have a a paideia. We have a a discipline. Uh, We have an opportunity for rules and regulations and processes to come to bear on a life of the child so that they would be trained in righteousness. Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 19. As you know, the Proverbs are chock full of these principles that we are to imbibe as parents and, of course, as children. In chapter 19 of Proverbs, verse 18, this ought to be an encouragement for you, parents. Proverbs 19, 18 Discipline your son, for there is, what? Hope. Have you had a sense of hopelessness in your parenting? I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, because mine would surely go up. At times, you, you really ask yourself the question, Is, Lord, there hope? He says, here's one way to have it. Discipline your son. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. You say, well, I would never think of such a thing. Oh. (laughs) Chapter 15, verse 32. This is what you believe by hope, through hope, that they receive into their minds... Chapter 15, verse 32, Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Just a couple of verses that you can cling to when the going gets tough, when the parenting is a great, great challenge. I had even the opportunity last night to sit down with some of my older children, and talk through things. And by the time we were finished, I looked at the, at the clock, and it was 12.41 a.m. 
But you know what? It was time. It was time to talk through a busy day. I've sat many a time with a child on the bed of their parents talking through even to the wee hours of the morning about whatever they were concerned about, whatever issues are coming to bear upon the family. Why? Because it's necessary, because it takes work, because it's hard, because there's a wicked world out there and that wicked world wants to impinge upon the very life of your child. What are you going to do to stop that? What's your plan? How are you going to take the Word of God and as Paul says here, to bring your child up in the discipline of the Lord. What kind of training plan do you have? Is it haphazard? Is it inconsistent? Is it a plan that sometimes materializes but sometimes does not? Or is there no plan at all? What's your plan? Lloyd-Jones, the parent who is not consistent in his conduct, cannot truly exercise discipline in the case of the child. A parent who does one thing today and the contrary thing tomorrow is not capable of sound discipline. There must be consistency not only in the reaction but also in the conduct and the behavior of the parent. There must be a pattern about the life of the parent for the child is always observing and watching. Always. It's, it's so true. They watch everything we do, everything that we are, and for good or bad, right or wrong, they tend to march right out of our homes doing the very things we have modeled for them. Proverbs 13:24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Discipline. The systematic teaching of children That's what we're all about in student ministries. That's what my dear, beloved brother Tim Sin has done for 10 years of his life. Because we know they're going to stray from the path. What a godly gift you have in this dear man. What a gift. What an assistance. What an advocate. What a person coming alongside. And I know that there have been so many of you in these parenting challenges who have sought him out both publicly and privately and he's been used of God. You can tell by the very song that was dedicated to him that that's the case. Shepherd of those kids' hearts. And then Paul says here, not just discipline, not just paideia, but instruction or admonition or maybe even this, warning. Warning. Nuthesia. That's where we get that word for which Nuthetic counseling comes from. Nuthesia, it's verbal instruction, verbal warning. It's to admonish. It's to place the Word of God, to exert influence from the Word of God into the mind of your young people. What an opportunity. It's absolutely necessary. There's no replacement for that. Few people are more interested in going to movies, or more interested in media outlets for entertainment, more interested in things that have no relationship to Jesus Christ, no relationship to the things of God, no idea of the influence of our culture upon us, and you're running breakneck speed down the path 
of allowing them to be nurtured by that kind of cultural influence and not concomitantly challenging them to take the Word of God in their own heart to combat the very things that our culture is portraying before them, then you and I are not showing our parenting as a ministry. What do we do? What do you do? Family worship, prayer, study of the Scripture, encouraging them, holding them accountable, asking them, have you read the Scripture today? What did you get out of your Scripture reading today? How's your prayer life? Who are you praying for? For whom or to whom are you ministering? Are you giving your life away? What's your passion? Are you self-consumed? Are you simply a product of the environment around you? How are you giving your life away? Those are grand questions that must be asked of children. Challenge them. Challenge them at the heart of things. If you don't, who will? If you as a parent don't challenge them, instruct them, warn them, guide them, push them, provoke them to love and good deeds, who else is going to do it? Who else is going to respond? This is, this is the heart of the very message that Tim Sin preaches better than I do. Both from his life and from his teaching ministry because he has these children on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings and in concentrated times in retreats and in mission trips and in settings for which there is opportunity galore for him to ask those kinds of questions. Are you thankful for such questions? But he can't do it alone. And he shouldn't. He shouldn't be the only one asking them questions. You need to ask them those questions yourself. What are you living for? Are you living for Christ? Is Christ controlling your life? Is the Holy Spirit dominating your thinking? What do you do when the choices come your way? What's happening when your peers come around you and ask you if you want to do this or that and go to this or that function and you say in your own heart, pricked by your own conscience, I know if I go there, I know if I do that, that's not going to be good. I know I might be tempted to compromise. And it's that, at that very point that you need to encourage them, come alongside them, challenge their thinking, speaking the truth in love, warning, instructing. As we close, I want you to see someone as a profound neg- negative example. Look at Eli, 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. This, is, this ought to be the, one of the most clear negative examples in all of the Bible that ought to keep all of us shuddering in doing what is right by seeing someone who did it wrongly. Look at chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. How would you like to have your name inscripturated for all eternity as someone who was worthless and didn't know the Lord. Terrible. In my Bible, it's under a category called Eli's worthless sons. Eli didn't discipline his sons. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't restrain them. He didn't admonish them. He didn't do the very thing that Paul says that we must do and that is to bring our children up, rear them carefully in a nurturing way, steering them to be warned 
in the Lord about their deeds. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, which gives a sense of the context of how long his sons were doing their wickedness. And Eli, he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. They were going right up to the place of worship with their immorality. And he said to them, implied, too late, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. You could even imply from that, Why didn't you know it, Eli? Why didn't you know it first? Why do you have to hear from the people of the Lord? Verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And then this credible statement, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. Here it is, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And look look at chapter 3, verse 13. You'd say, well, that's just God's sovereign decree. Yeah, but look at human responsibility. Chapter 3, verse 13. This is God through Samuel. Verse 12, on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And here it is, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house for how long? Forever. For the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. He failed to restrain his sons. Did you know that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word for rebuke is the same root word for warning, instruction, admonition in Ephesians 6.4? He did the very opposite Paul would have commanded him to do, very positively, bring them up in the discipline, the training, and the warning, and the instruction, and the admonition of the Lord, and he failed to admonish his sons, and his priesthood was taken away from him forever. And of course, you know what happened to Eli. Look at chapter 4, verse 11, for his sons. And the ark of the covenant, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, All the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is the uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? 
He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat and by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. What a terrible death. What terrible news and what terrible judgment. J.W. Alexander said in his marvelous book, Thoughts on Family Worship, where the head of the, the family is one who grows in grace and Christian knowledge, he will by his very presence lift up the hearts of his household. Summon a family to the worship of God, something Eli, of course, didn't do. Summon a family to the worship of God at stated hours, and you summon each one to a seriousness of reflection of which he might have been wholly robbed by the hurry of the day's business. Where the head of the family is lukewarm or worldly, he will send the chill through the whole house. This is absolutely crucial. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Are they getting their cues more from the world and our culture than they are from the Lord through you? First and foremost, Lloyd-Jones says, the bringing up of children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is something which is to be in the home by the parents. This is the emphasis throughout the Bible. It is not something that is to be handed over to the school. However good the school may be, it is the duty of parents, their primary and most essential duty. It is their responsibility, and they are not to hand over this responsibility to another. And then this, this is, this is your parenting as a ministry. What we have to do is make Christianity attractive We should give our children the impression that the most wonderful thing in the world is Christianity and that there is nothing in life comparable to being a Christian. We should create within them the desire to be like us. They see us and they see the joy that we have in it and the way we marvel and wonder at it all. They should be saying to themselves, I'm longing to be as old as they are so that I can enjoy it as they obviously do. Our method must never be mechanical, legal, repressive. Our testimony must never be forced, but in all we are and do and say, let them know that we ourselves are bond slaves of Jesus Christ, that God in His grace has opened our eyes and awakened us to the most glorious thing in the world, and that our greatest desire for them is that they may enter into the same knowledge and have the same joy and have the highest privilege in this world, that of serving the Lord and living to the praise of the glory of His grace." Is that your goal? What do your kids see when they see you at home? If they see what I just read and what we just looked at, they're going to see your own parenting as a ministry, first to them and then to a world that desperately needs that kind of message and example. Let's pray together. Father, this is sobering yet hopeful that You can and will, as You have promised, give us Your Holy Spirit power 
to respond in this way in this daunting task that is called parenting. Lord, thank You for the assistance of our dear brother, Tim Sin. Thank You for his life. Thank You for his example at home. Thank You for his wife. Thank You for their children. Thank You for their parenting. May it be ever and always the very reflection of the message they have just heard. And may all of us, in following them and their example, and in their seeing and rejoicing in the example of others, even those much older than they, whose parenting is to the praise of the glory of Your grace, because we have brought these children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and we've endeavored to plan how not to provoke them to wrath. Lord, may it be so. Lord, if there are those here today who are parents, but they don't have that Holy Spirit power because they're not Christian parents, may You convict them of their sin and cause them to rise up and acknowledge that sin and to confess it for what it is, parenting without Christ. Cause them, Lord, to cry out to the Lord Jesus. I want to be a parent who glorifies God. Oh, Lord, I pray for those who are racked with guilt today because that was not their kind of parenting. They knew Christ, but they didn't honor Christ as Lord in their home and their children are wayward. Lord, salve the wounds of a guilty conscience with the confession of sin and with the seeking of obedience from this point forward. And I pray for every wayward child that You would bring them to Yourself. And whatever glimpses they may have seen of what a Christian parent could be, even if it wasn't in their own home, may You bring that to their minds so that they would rejoice in the salvation that they have long rejected. Lord, I pray for those for whom they were Christians only after their parenting days were over. And I pray that You would give them rejoicing that even those things which have been quite bitter could become so sweet in the salvation of Jesus Christ and that from the point of their salvation they could begin to nurture and encourage and pray for and witness to their children. And I pray that those adult children, seeing the transformation in the life of those parents, even long after that parenting has been over, that by that radical transformation they could see that they can be adult Christians just like their born-again parents. Oh Lord, for every situation, every scenario, 
May you be pleased to work for the praise of the glory of your grace. Pray in his name. Amen.